Well, we're continuing uh, this morning our study through uh, the book, the Old Testament uh, book of 1 Samuel. We're looking at the end of 1 Samuel 14 and the beginning of 1 Samuel 15. And um, I'll just say up front that uh, today we are uh, looking at one of the more uh, challenging uh, passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. Uh, this is uh, the kind of passage that someone reads and says, this is exactly why I would never believe in the God of the Bible, because of passages like this one. And even when I read this passage, you might wonder, why are we having sermons on uh, texts like this? And my answer to that would be that we can't pretend like passages like this aren't there. We believe as a church that the whole Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word, and uh, we have to face the whole Bible honestly. And one of the reasons I believe in passages like this one is because whether we like them or not, they reflect what the real world is like. Uh, the real world is not a happy, pretty place where people are just loving each other all the time. And if, uh, if that's all that the Bible talked about was kind of happy, loving people, you know, loving each other all the time, we would say this book is not about the real world. It's not about real life. It's not about real history. It's not about human civilization. And so today we're going to ask the Lord to teach us uh, about a passage that is hard for us to understand. And I believe uh, that he's going to lead our hearts through that uh, to trust him more. So uh, let's uh, look together at these words from 1 Samuel, um, 1 Samuel uh, 14 and 15. You can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and uh, Malkishua. And uh, the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the, uh, the firstborn was uh, Merib, and the name of the younger, Michal. And uh, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, uh, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of uh, the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, uh, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did uh, to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned uh, the people and numbered them in uh, Telaim, uh, 200,000 uh, men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul uh, came to the city of Amalek 
and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag... Uh, the king of uh, the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we open our hearts and minds to you and uh, we gather here every week to sit under your word. And we believe that your word is true, your word is good, your word is just because you are all those things. And we long for your light to shine into our lives. And, but Lord, we need you to be our teacher. Would you open up this passage for us? Would you lead us to our Savior Jesus that we might follow him in obedience, that we would trust in him with faith? And uh, may he be our life. And uh, so send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher now as we look at a difficult passage, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our topic today is uh, violence in the Bible. How are we supposed to think about the violence and warfare that are such a part of the Old Testament? A lot, many of the passages of the Old Testament is quite a lot of violence. And even into the New Testament, it talks about violence as well. And I'd like to give three simple answers to that. How should we think about the violence in the Bible? Three answers to that question from this passage. And this is what they are today is that first, violence is used by kings to protect the vulnerable. Second, violence is used by God to judge the extraordinarily wicked. And third, violence is used by Jesus to show us the goodness of God. So violence is used by kings to protect, uh, to protect the vulnerable. Second, violence is used by God to judge the extraordinarily wicked. And third, violence is used by Jesus to show us the goodness of God. And I probably won't get to all the questions you might have from this passage. If you have questions, you come ask me after the, after the, sermon, uh, the service if you want. But I'm going to do the best, my, best I can. So how are we supposed to think about the violence in the Bible? Three points this morning. And the first is this, that violence is used in the Bible by kings to protect the vulnerable. Violence is used by kings to protect the vulnerable. And this passage that I just read begins by giving a record of King Saul's military successes as a king. You see that there in verse 47, where it says, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom. So those are the, the nations that are on the east of the, the land of Israel. And then against the kings of Zobah, that was, that's who's on the north. And against the Philistines, uh, that's who's on the west. And wh wherever he turned, he routed them. And what it's important to see at the beginning here is that Saul is not invading other people's lands to steal their land from them. They are invading his lands. And he's protecting his people from these surrounding invaders. And so you see there in verse 48 how it says, 
And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites. The Amalekites are those who are on the south and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So these foreign invaders who were plundering them. Now, as a Christian, you might read about all these battles in the Bible and, or the battles in the Old Testament and think, doesn't the Bible talk about you're supposed to love your enemies? You're not supposed to kill your enemies. You're not supposed to go to war with your enemies. And uh, shouldn't the Bible be talking about peace and love and not about battles and people killing each other? Well, and the answer is yes. On the one hand, that the gospel is really by far the greatest source of peace in human civilizations in, church, uh, in, in human history. And the gospel does come into a culture and create peace, but that doesn't change the fact that human culture historically has been absolutely brutal. And uh, this is often hard for us to understand. You know, we enjoy really relative peace here in a place like Bellingham, the United States. I mean, we don't worry about Canada coming across the border and stealing our property or stealing, uh, stealing our possessions or going to war with us or killing our family. We don't worry about that. But if you read about Christian kings in history, this is a major part of a king's service to his people is to protect the vulnerable from invaders. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples. You know, I've been particularly interested in the reigns of, of Charlemagne of the Franks and, uh, and Alfred the Great, who was the first king of England. These were uh, both Christian kings. They both lived in the, in the ninth century. And they both had a particular interest in education and educating uh, their peoples. They're basically the fathers of Western Europe. And they wanted to educate their people and civilize them so that they could live at peace with one another. But both of them had to become experts in war because they had these really brutal barbarian peoples that were invading their, their people all the time. And there's a great story about Alfred and his wars against the Danes. He was regularly fighting against the Vikings who would come onto the shores of England and they would just come into uh, you know, a farm and just kill the family, take all the food, rape the women, and then just go on to the next town. And they were just like, we're going to come into England. We're going to take all your stuff. And, uh, and one of the uh, Danish kings, Guthrum, uh, had uh, come into the east of England and, and taken over a huge portion of the, the eastern portion of England, of, uh, of Northumbria and Mercia and East Anglia. And there was only one kingdom left in England that he had not uh, defeated, and it was Wessex, that, and that was Alfred's kingdom. He was the king of Wessex. And so Alfred's decisive battle was 878, is the Battle of Eddington. And uh, Alfred was very level-headed. He was wise. He was also merciful. You know, he was always trying to make treaties and make peace, but he was an expert in war. And he defeated Guthrum, and he had taken Guthrum the king uh, captive and taken his soldiers, and Guthrum came and said, well, you've proven that your God is stronger than my God's. And so Alfred said to him, instead of killing him, he says, well, then you should receive baptism. Receive a new way of life by bowing to the God of peace. And Guthrum did. And actually, Al Alfred let him be a ruler in Alfred's kingdom for the rest of his life. He ruled as a Christian king. And Alfred was his sponsor. And he discipled him. And he taught him about the scriptures. And he taught him about how to be a Christian king. And you might think that's crazy, converting people by defeating them in battle and at sword point that you're going to like make them get baptized. But you have to think about what else are you going to do? You know, imagine you're a king and you have these, these, these foreign pagan uh, violent peoples that are just killing all your people. And then now you have this army that you've defeated. What are you going to do with these soldiers? You really have three options. I mean, you can't just let them go. 
I mean, they're just going to go pillage your people more. You can either kill them or you can enslave them or you can tell them your life has to change. And they knew that baptism meant I'm taking on a new kind of culture and civilization. I'm going to submit myself to the Prince of Peace. And that was the only option. And if we think the Bible is not going to speak regularly about warfare and violence, it's because our understanding of the world is so narrowly shaped by our cultural moment and place. Violence has, had to be used by Christian kings to protect the vulnerable. Now, we have to make one point about that. Uh, you know, Christians, philosophers throughout history have talked about just war theory. And even the Greeks and the Romans wrote about just war theory. Like, what are the, is the rationale where you can justly go to war? And really, the main reason to go to war is to protect people. I mean, you, uh, just war theory says you can't, you know, go steal other people's lands to build your empire and make a king rich. That's not a just war. And even though the majority of Saul's conquests in this passage are defensive, you know, people are attacking him and he's defending his people against attacking invaders. In this passage, God gives him one offensive objective and it's against the Amalekites. And the, the Lord made clear to Saul, I'm gonna give you this special mission because of my judgment against the Amalekites and so you're going to go attack them. But when you attack them, you can't take their oxen. You can't take their, their cattle. You are not going to make yourself rich with this battle because this is really about a moral judgment that the God's bringing against these people. And in this passage, you see what Saul does there in chapter 15, verse 7. It says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep of the oxen and of the fatted, fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And, then, and all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And so the Lord gives him this command and Saul takes it as an opportunity to, to make himself rich and to make his soldiers rich. And it, we're, we're gonna find out next week, is this one act from Saul, because he used this as an opportunity to make himself rich, the Lord says, I'm taking the kingdom from you. And he'll no longer be the king of Israel because of this act. The Lord is serious about an unjust war. The Bible is clear, you can't just invade neighboring people to make yourself rich, violence, is only to be used by Christian kings to protect the vulnerable. But that raises a question because, you know, let's say you have a, a neighboring people that just keeps attacking you and you put up a wall and you defend against them and you push them out and you push them out and they just don't, they're unrelenting. They just keep coming after you. And especially in this case, when those neighboring peoples are attacking God's chosen people who are supposed to be a light to the world. And the Lord's like, these are my people who are the only hope of all the nations. They have the truth of, of peace and, and God's righteousness. What, at what point is the Lord going to say, these people can't exist anymore? And well, you'll notice that one group mentioned in, in Saul's list of military accomplishments is the Amalekites. In verse 48, it says, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now, the Amalekites were a particularly violent and evil neighbor of the Israelites with a history, a long history of attacking God's people. And so this leads to our second point. So the first thing we see is violence is used in the Bible by kings 
to protect the vulnerable. But second is that violence is also used by God to judge the extraordinarily wicked. Violence is used by God in the Bible to, to judge the extraordinarily wicked. And you'll notice what happens in the beginning of chapter 15. This is really the troubling part of this verse. It's hard for us to hear. Chapter 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so how are we supposed to understand, make sense of this command? Well, let me try to answer three questions for us that might help us understand what's happening in these verses, okay? Three, three questions to help us understand. So the first is, who are the Amalekites? Okay, the people that are being killed here are the Amalekites. And you'll notice that the Lord makes a mention of the Exodus story in verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, this is a reference back to Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord rescued this whole nation of slaves. And they're wandering in the wilderness. They're living in tents. I mean, you imagine how vulnerable a nation of free slaves are. And the Amalekites, very early on after they left Egypt, attacked them to try to take you know, all their possessions. And if you know the story in Exodus 17, it's when uh, Moses had to hold the staff above his head and he had Aaron on one side and her on the other side. And if he was holding the staff above his head, the Israelites would win the battle. And then when he lowered the staff, they would be losing the battle. And so he had to keep the staff above his head until the end of the battle. And then at, at the end of the battle, the Israelites win. And, and it says in Exodus, then the Lord said to Moses, Write as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, uh, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Lord says there's gonna be a long war between Israel and Amalek. Now, some of you might say, if Amalek is so bad, why not back in Exodus 17? Why didn't the Lord just destroy them then instead of waiting 400 years until now the story of Saul when he goes and, and has them killed? Why is the Lord waiting so long? And the answer is that the Bible repeats over and over again. It's one of the, the most common refrains about who the God of the Bible is, is that he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. It takes time. And he's always giving people long periods of time to repent and to turn from him, to, see, to change. The Lord does that with us. He waits. He's waited for you and me. He gives us time to change and to turn to him. He doesn't just pounce on us. And so how long will the Lord wait? You know, how slow is his anger? Well, I have kind of a personal theory that there is a pattern in the Bible that it takes about 400 years for the Lord to get angry. Actually, if you go back to the story of, uh, of Abraham, when God told Abraham, I'm going to give you the promised land, do you know how long he said God's people would have to go into Egypt and suffer under the Egyptians before they could have the promised land? 400 years. And why was that? Because the Canaanites, they hadn't sinned enough yet. And he says it's going to have to take 400 years of sins before I can justify removing them from the land. And then you see the Amalekites here, and they say, oh, they attack the Israelites, and how long until God judges them? It's 400 years. And then, you know, it's the same with the Israelites. 
When the Israelites' kingdom starts, they have all their kings of the Israelites in both in Israel and in Judah. They sin against the Lord and they worship idols. You know how long there were kings in Israel before God uh, brought them into exile in the Babylon, among the Babylonians? 400 years. How many years from the end of the Old Testament to the coming of Christ? 400 years. How long from the coming of Christ when he says, I'm the true Lord and, and the you know, Caesar of the Roman Empire is not the true Lord? How long until the fall of the Roman Empire? 400 years. Over and over again, the Bible says God is slow to anger. He is patient in wanting people to turn to him. And even in this passage, you know, he's giving the Amalekites a chance to turn to him. There are these violent people that just invade people and take their stuff and kill their families and rape their women. And notice what it says in verse 6. Then Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites are this nomadic group that lived among the Amalekites. He says, go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when you came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So you've got these people that live among the Amalekites. And, and Saul says, hey, listen, you guys might want to leave because there's a judgment coming. And if you're an Amalekite, what are you supposed to do? I'm going with the Kenites. <laughs> the judgment is coming. We've been wicked and the Lord is going to come judge us. And that happens over and over again in the Bible. You know, when the Israelites leave Egypt, there's a bunch of Egyptians that leave with them. Because they were like, oh, your God is the true God. I've been wicked. I should repent and turn to you. There is always an opportunity to turn from our evil ways and to receive the grace and forgiveness of God. And if anyone ever says that these kinds of, of um, judgments in the, in the Bible are like racial judgments or an ethnic cleansing, that is absolutely not true. That is never true in any of these cases. It is always a moral judgment because of the actions that people have done, that God is judging them, and they always have an opportunity, long periods of time, to turn to the Lord and change their ways. And so the first question is, who are the Amalekites? They are a persistently violent and wicked people, and they have made God's people their enemy for 400 years. Okay? So the second question then is then, what did the Lord want done to them? What did the Lord want done to them? And clearly the instruction is to kill every living thing among the Amalekites. Now I should say, we get very few details of what that actually looks like. You know, it says to kill the women and kill the children. And there's no description of a child ever being killed. We don't even know that a child was killed. Uh, and it is possible that this is a form of... of uh, you know, hyperbole. It may be a rhetorical device to say that everyone is killed all the way down to the little child is a way of, of saying how complete the devastation was. And so, for example, you know, when Israel is, Israel is given a, a similar command when they go into the promised land and to, to kill the king. Canaanites and to devote everything to destruction. And scholars have noted that if you look at the cities that they attack in the book of Joshua, they're largely military outposts. And if they're military outposts, there would not have been families there. There might have been a few women there. There's likely no children there. And it's largely, you know, so non-combatants were not necessarily being killed. And then sometimes in the book of Joshua would say things like, and then everyone was killed and uh, everyone was devoted to destruction. It was complete devastation. And then you read like two pages later. And then they were talking to the people of the land. And you'd say, 
How are there people in the land? I thought you just said two pages ago that everyone was killed. And clearly, it wasn't that literally everyone was killed. Because this is a rhetorical device that we, we do the same kind of thing. You know, you imagine, um, I was watching the, uh, the Huskies uh, uh, last week. They were playing Michigan State. And you could imagine, they beat Michigan State, and you could imagine that a, uh, the next day, the news article says that the University of Washington Huskies absolutely slaughtered the Michigan, you know, Michigan State in the first half uh, in the game the day before. And you picture some archaeologists 3,000 years from now, they find this little scrap of, of the newspaper, and they're like, they were playing this football game, and it says that one team absolutely absolutely slaughtered the other team. And they're saying, well, so I, they must have killed them all. And there's just blood all over the field and no one was left alive. And we're thinking, no, it just meant they scored three touchdowns in one quarter. And you think that they're all dead. It's, you need to know the context of how you talk. And we don't know exactly what rhetoric is being used, okay? So we don't actually have a perfect picture of what happened in this scene. But either way, the instruction is to leave no one alive. And so this uh, raises a third question for us. So we say, who are the Amalekites? They're persistently wicked and violent people. And what did the Lord the command to be done is that they were going to be uh, uh, killed as a people. And so the third question then is, how is this just? How can we say that this is just? And uh, some of you uh, might say, you know, doesn't the Bible say in the Ten Commandments uh, that you shall not kill? And if the Bible says, you know, if the Ten Commandments say you shall not kill, how is not, this is not God breaking his own commandment? He says you shall not kill, and then he says to go kill these people. And the answer is that the Ten Commandments forbid unauthorized killings. The Ten Commandments forbid unauthorized killings because clearly God in the Bible authorizes some killings. So, for example, in the Mosaic Law, if you commit murder, the consequence is, is the death penalty, is capital punishment. And that's, you know, the principle in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. If you steal someone's cow, you have to give them back the cow and then give them another cow. It's a cow for a cow. If you take someone's life, you have to give your life in, in uh, payment for it. And this power of the sword is given to kings and to the, the civil magistrate and political leaders. Romans 13, this is in the New Testament, puts it this way. He is God's servant for your good. This is talking about the king or the, the, the governor. He is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. That is, that's what Saul is doing in this passage. He's going to war with these invading neighbors and he bears the sword for the safety of his people and that is absolutely just. So a killing is considered just when it has truly been authorized by God. And this is one of the most important things that we have to settle in our hearts is that God is the Lord and giver of life. He is the one who gave us life that we didn't ask for. We, weren't, we didn't ask to be born. We just came into this world. And God has appointed the day for each one of us when we will die. He has allotted to us a certain number of days. And they are not our right. We're not entitled to them. They are a gift from him. And, 
And he has the right to take away a life when he wills because he is the creator. And he does that all the time. God every day takes the lives of men, women, and children. And we all know that any death that happens on this planet, God could have easily stopped it. He's not, God is not way off on the other side of the universe. The book of Acts says that he is not far from each one of us. And in fact, it's not only that God will sometimes take the lives of human beings, but he's going to take all of our lives at some point. And it will never be pretty. You know, I just walked with my own dad through his death, a year of dying. Death is not pretty. And when we realize that, we come to passages like this and realize that even though they are shocking, they are consistent with the reality of the world that we are living in. The real world is shockingly filled with tragic death. The whole earth that God made is soaked in the blood of billions upon billions of human lives throughout history. That's the reality of our world. And if the Bible does not speak honestly about that, it's not dealing with reality. Now, I know some of you will hear that and say, okay, so killings are allowed if they're authorized by God. Well, why doesn't someone go kill people and say, well, God told me to do that. Isn't that exactly the people who killed Jesus? Isn't that what they thought, that they were serving God when they killed Jesus? And that's why our church believes in a strict adherence to the Bible is the only authorized word of God. These kinds of killings are only instructed a couple times, and it's over 3,000 years ago, and we know who it is. It's the Canaanites and the Amalekites. And there's no other commands like that. There's certainly no commands in our day to do anything like this. And in fact, the Bible warns, if you do something evil and say, God told me to do this, the punishment is going to be severe. And so what, we have, what we've learned so far about violence in the Bible is first, violence is used by Christian kings to protect the vulnerable. And second, that violence is used by God to judge only the extraordinarily wicked. And in this case, the Amalekites were a persistently wicked people. And after 400 years, the Lord decided to remove them from the earth, which is his right as their creator and God. But this leads to our third point that we see in this passage, is that violence is used by Jesus to show us the goodness of God. Violence is used by Jesus to show us the goodness of God. And, you know, I think there's still a question. You know, you might say, okay, the violence of God is justified. He's the creator. He's the king. He gave us life. He can take it when he wants to. But how do I, why should I trust him? Like, how, does that mean that I know that he's good and he loves me? That, I mean, if he's violent kills, how can I put my life into his hand and entrust my life to his hand? And I'll tell you, the Bible has one of the most incredible answers to that question you could ever imagine. I mean, what could God possibly do with all the death that's happened in the world to convince you that he is a God that you should trust and a God that is good and that actually loves you? Well, you'll notice that word there in verse three where it says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Now, in Hebrew, this is a word that really means make this people an offering to God. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is a word that means to utterly destroy these people. And the root of that word is used in the New Testament. It's largely used to talk about people who have been condemned by God. But there's one place when Jesus is being sentenced to death on the cross. 
Jesus took the place of a terrorist on the cross. His name was Barabbas. He was supposed to die on that cross, and Jesus took his place on the cross. And in that verse, it says this. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, let Barabbas go free, and destroy Jesus. This devotion to destruction landed on Jesus on the cross. And so when you ask a question, you know, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, it's not like that he just died. It's not like, you know, getting hit by a car. It was all of God's wrath against sin. All the eternal destruction that humanity deserves for their sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. And when you say, how can I trust a God who devotes people to destruction, as strange as it is, this God himself became a human and was himself devoted to destruction. The destruction that he put on others, he himself put himself under. He became a holy offering, except he wasn't being destroyed for his own sin. He was being destroyed for the sins of his enemies. What God placed on the Amalekites, he placed also on himself. And so this God may be fierce, and we should fear him as, great and, as a great and holy judge, but one thing we can't say about him is that he is not good. There's no one more just, there's no one more holy, but also there is no one more patient. There's no one more slow to anger and there's absolutely no one more loving. We cannot ignore the violence in the Bible. And though it may puzzle us or seem strange or foreign to us, violence is a part of being a king in a brutal world. And even God himself uses violence to judge the extraordinarily wicked like uh, the Amalekites. But ultimately, we must squarely face the violence of the Bible because only through it do we learn about the goodness and love and salvation and forgiveness that are ours in Jesus. We can only understand the violence of the Bible by looking at the cross. And in the cross, we see that God is both holy, but even more, his love is greater than all the violence in the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for the, the strange mystery of your word. A word that takes us out of our cultural moment and we see your purposes throughout history. And Lord, we thank you that we live in a place that has been so transformed by the gospel that we enjoy peace. And we pray for your peace to come to this world more. And as we read your word, we pray that we would be filled with awe that Jesus has gone to the cross to take the violence of humanity upon himself, that we might be set free from it. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.